You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back to National Security Law Today. Today, we're going to be discussing all things SEGAR. That's the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, not the Cuban things you smoke. Before we jump in, here's your weekly disclaimer. The lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacities and not on behalf of any agency or company. Also this week, we'd like to welcome back everyone's favorite guest host, Harvey Rishikoff. Uh, It's great to be back and particularly to be able to see and speak to John Sopko again. He's one of those individuals who's toiled, I would say, uh, quietly in the national security law vineyard for decades doing extraordinary service. So it's a great opportunity to see him and honor him and speak to his new role that he's been doing for a number of years as the, as the boss at Seagar. So we've spent three podcasts uh, on inspectors general and the intelligence community and the procedures they follow. That's a plug for you to listen back if that's an interesting subject for you. But the Seagar is a horse of a different color. He's specifically tasked with conducting audits and inspections to make sure the Afghanistan reconstruction funds are spent effectively. And there are a lot of funds to oversee. Since 2002, about $137 billion, with a B, has been appropriated for this purpose. So it's a big, big job to detect any fraud, waste, and abuse afoot. And today we'd like to welcome to the podcast the Seagar himself, Mr. John Sopko. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here and to be talking to you about uh, uh, two of my most favorite subjects, uh, Afghanistan and cigar. Great. Um, John, would you be helpful? Can you help lay out what your statutory authority is and why you're similar and different from a classic inspector general and an IG? Very good. Happy to do that. It's a good starting point. Uh, Like all of the other 70-some IGs, there are now 70 of them out there, uh, we fall under the 1978 uh, IG Act as amended, which lays out uh, uh, our duties and responsibilities, as well as how we can be removed, which has been very popular in the uh, press recently. Uh, But we have a second act that we deal with, And that's the uh, 2008 NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, which established SIGAR and laid out our specific uh, duties, responsibilities. uh, And that's probably where we draw some of our distinction from the other IGs and what really makes us unique. Uh, What, unlike the other IGs, now like all IGs or most of the IGs, we have law enforcement authority, auditing authority, et cetera. I mean, I can conduct searches, seizures, even carry a weapon, although I never do that. I usually just carry muskets like I have in the background. Uh, but the, uh, the, the act that created us did something that it has no other IG has. We're not housed in any one government agency. So we're not uh, in the DOD. We're not in state. We're not in aid, et cetera. Accordingly, our job is to be independent, seriously independent of the various agencies, and to look at what we call the whole of government. 
So we look at any U.S. government dollar spent on reconstruction in Afghanistan by any U.S. agency. So although we look, most of our time, we look at DOD and state and USAID, but we also looked at the Department of Justice, we looked at the Department of Commerce, Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, FAA. We also can follow U.S. tax dollars into the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, uh, and other international organizations. So we have a very broad charter, and that's what kind of keeps us different and makes us different than the other agencies. We also, unlike the other IGs, we have specific language that says the, neither the Secretary of Defense, no one in the Department of Defense, Department of State, USAID, shall prevent or prohibit in SIGAR from initiating, carrying out, or completing any audit or investigation, or from seeking records in, from, by subpoenas. So that's not even in any other IGX. So we have some really unique authorities, which uh, uh, helps to keep us special. So we've set the stage about what you do, but can you tell us a bit about your philosophy and running um, your team and what your day-to-day -day looks like? Yeah, um, you know, my philosophy on the IG, on SIGAR, is in a way formed by the fact that uh, I've been working uh, on the hill or around the hill since I came here in 1978. So uh, I came right after the IGs uh, uh, were first created, uh, worked with IGs, and uh, actually was involved in getting three IGs removed for incompetency, uh, one from criminality. Uh, but I, can, I spent 25, almost 25 years on the Hill working with them, so I understand what is the purpose of the Inspector General. And that has sort of guided my philosophy, and that is the IG Act of 1978 as amended is basically creating 70 little offices whose main job is to improve how government works. And that's what's been driving my approach with SIGAR. My job, and, and fortunately because of the responsibilities we've been given, I don't deal with time and attendance, I don't deal with travel vouchers, I don't deal with somebody uses a government official to take a dog uh, on a walk. Those aren't the type of actions we look at. We look at the bigger issues of fraud, waste, and abuse, and how to improve how government works. So that's what's been driving uh, my office. Uh, I think also with because of that, my philosophy is, and this goes back to when I was a federal prosecutor and when I was a state prosecutor, uh, you got to go and kick the tires. So in our line of work, that means you got to be in Afghanistan and you got to be kicking the tires. You got to see what works and what doesn't work. You got to talk to the people. And that is the only way to really do a good job. And that's what we've done. So we've had a very large presence for most of my tenure uh, in Afghanistan. The COVID-19 uh, epidemic has uh, reduced our presence uh, and everybody's presence there. But we had the largest, and still do, we have the largest oversight presence, U.S. oversight presence in Afghanistan. We have more auditors, more investigators, 
uh, more analysts in Afghanistan than the Department of State, Department of Defense, and uh, GAO and USAID combined. And that's not to criticize them. It's just that our job is Afghanistan and you got to have the people. And a lot of our cases are based upon the contacts we make and the things we've seen, the tires we've kicked in Afghanistan over the time that I've run the agency. And as you said, we've been fighting in Afghanistan since 2001, and the U.S. has spent more than $137 billion on reconstruction in that time. And you just mentioned that there's a lot of personnel on the ground there uh, from your office. Could you tell us the current state of, of affairs over there and what you and the folks on the ground see as the biggest threats to Afghanistan and our aims there? Uh, you know, the, the biggest threat, I mean, there's a lot of them, but uh, the biggest one has obviously been corruption. Uh, and we, we issued a report uh, last year. We do it every time, uh, every couple of years on what are the uh, uh, high risks uh, in Afghanistan. And our last report listed eight of them, uh, corruption being there, uh, insecurity, undeveloped police, civil policing. They really don't have much civil policing capability. Uh, endemic uh, corruption, I mentioned, sluggish economic growth, uh, illicit narcotics trafficking, uh, threat to women's rights, uh, reintegration of uh, ex-combatants and, and restricted oversight. Those are some of, the, some of the issues. So all of them are kind of interconnected, but they all uh, paint a not too pretty picture of the state of affairs. Uh, there is a glimmer of peace, which we hope uh, takes control and takes charge there. But uh, up to now, it's, uh, it's pretty problematic. And then add to that, the COVID-19, and it was just announced, I believe, by the Minister of Health just last week that the entire health care system in Afghanistan has collapsed because of the uh, COVID-19. So that just uh, rubs salt in the wound of uh, a very poor country that's faced a lot of uh, uh, insecurity over the last uh, 20, 30 years. The Afghan economy is something that doesn't get as much press in the U.S. as the security situation, but you explore that in both your high-risk list and your quarterly reports. Can you talk about the state of the Afghan economy today? Happy to do that, and I'm glad you uh, mentioned it, uh, because there is a tendency in the press over the last number of months to totally focus on the number of U.S. troops there. Uh, but the economy and economic development was part of the reconstruction. And if we ignore that, I think we ignore some of the issues faced as well as some of the opportunities there. Uh, currently, the economy is not doing as well uh, as expected or as we hoped for. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the COVID-19 hasn't uh, helped it that much. Uh, the biggest problem with the economy is uh, again the corruption issue and the security issue and rule of law and of course the aba has taken a strong position and i know a number of, of people have gone over from the aba to help on rule of law issues and it's it's uh, uh there have been some advances but there's still some serious problems and when you don't have rule of law uh, when you don't have transparency and when you have corruption uh you're not going to get that much investment foreign investment, and that's been a problem. And we've uh, uh, 
I've seen that even just recently in the press, uh, uh, a very public uh, report came out that uh, one of the latest mining uh, uh, initiatives uh, failed in part because uh, the company, uh, all of their equipment was stolen and is now being used by the Taliban to uh, mine for gold. And it doesn't look like the Afghan government is capable of getting the mining equipment back or saving the outside investor uh, from operating. And, and so that's the, the difficulty you're, you're dealing with. The difficulty really is, is that Afghanistan still is donor dependent. Over 75% of the Afghan's government budget comes from donors. And uh, uh, in order for Afghanistan to eventually succeed, either the donors are going to have to keep pumping money in or they have to start building a, a viable economy so they can raise funds and taxes, et cetera, uh, to keep uh, uh, the government afloat. So that is it. I mean, to give you just an idea, in our last quarterly report, we noticed noted that uh, the illicit opium export is twice the size of the licit, the legal export in Afghanistan. So it gives you an idea about one of the only growth exports is opium. And unfortunately, Afghanistan is still the largest producer of opium in the world. And I, I've read about, um, you know, we've, we've had UN programs and other types of, uh, of, of programs that are designed to shift the economy away from the illicit trade to the licit. What are some of the challenges with trying to get, trying to wean the Afghan economy off of the op opium trade? Well, boy, we wrote a whole report. We could talk <laughs> a great deal just on uh, one of our lessons learned report was on the narcotics trade. Uh, narcotics is an attractive industry uh, in a place like Afghanistan. Uh, it, it, for a farmer, uh, growing opium is, uh, it, it's, he's not doing that of evil intent. He's doing it because it's a cash crop. And it's also a cash crop that he can invest. And that way he can, you know, he can actually wrap it in a, a plastic and put it in the ground. And it's an investment that later he can bring out to pay the dowry for his daughters or to uh, uh, get medicine or food. So it's a very complicated structure, and I think that's one of the problems. The other problem is we ignored it for too long, and now it, uh, you know, it, it, it is a larger employer uh, than the Afghan military and police. There are more people involved in that. So this is a tough thing, a tough nut to crack. We've spent eight, we, the United States alone, have spent $8 billion on counter-narcotics, and uh, our reports have shown it's been basically a total failure. So even though we are working with the Afghan police and they do make some major seizures, the amount seized by the Afghan government and military for the last 10 years is less than, I believe, 5% of what was produced just last year alone. So it's not a way to work it out, and that's the problem. Uh, the biggest problem we have with the economy over there is I think a lot of the people who come in to give expert advice, quote unquote, 
to the Afghan government or whatever don't really fully understand how Afghanistan works, how the people are interconnected, how the various tribes, the various organizations. And that's something we see in a lot of these. And this is a, you know, I've been doing this for eight years. I go there every four, four times a year. We got 20 some people there. Our people don't usually leave. They stay for long periods of time. Uh, we don't suffer from what we call the annual lobotomy where staff rotate every six months or every year. So we don't have this institutional memory. Well, SIGAR has the institutional memory. We understand who the players are and who you should talk to, who you shouldn't talk to, and how it works. Now, we're not Central Asian experts. You know, we're auditors, analysts, and investigators. Uh, but we understand the system. And I, I've seen too many people come to Afghanistan who advise the Afghans or advise the U.S., and they really don't understand where they are. And that's the scariest thing is when you see somebody says, well, we did this in Colombia and it worked there, so it should work in Afghanistan. Or like a lot of the, the people who were advising our government and advising the Afghan government were uh, saying, oh, well, this worked in Iraq, so it'll work perfectly here. No, it doesn't. It's like comparing apples and oranges. And that was one of the biggest problems. So I really think the biggest problem with the economy and economic development is we really need better trained and better educated people who are, can give the advice uh, on economic development. Uh, and, and that's been a problem. We, we, we've, uh, we've oversold and underdelivered on most of the economic development in Afghanistan. Uh, John, you've actually, you're coming up, I think, on your anniversary of being in this position for almost a decade. I think you were appointed in July 2012. That's correct, yeah. And I think, so over that span, um, what would you say have been some of the, the key sort of successes of your tenure and, and what you've uncovered and what you think the, the consequences have been uh, given the extraordinary job you've been asked to do and you've been doing? Well, you know, I think our, I mean, look at all IGs can point to how much money they've saved for the taxpayer. And I, we can do that too. We have over $3 billion we've returned to taxpayers. Uh, we've indicted hundreds of people uh, who were involved in fraud uh, against the U.S. government. We've assisted the Afghans in some major uh, investigations. So, I mean, we've done a lot of that. I mean, uh, We've been the first to actually uh, seize assets in Afghanistan, trying to use Afghan courts. No, no one else has done that. Uh, so we've done a lot of your traditional uh, work that IGs do. But I think what's significant, and I think your question was, well, what did you really accomplish? I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a great question, and that's a question you should ask every IG. Because there's a tendency we've seen, and I've seen in particular, that our government looks at inputs, outputs, but never outcomes. Mm -hmm. So we look at, if you call up uh, USAID or DOD or state, they'll say, oh yeah, well we got $132 billion or we got, that's an input. Okay, they usually are pretty good at counting that. Outputs, oh, we gave the Afghans a million shoes. We gave them 10 million rounds of ammunition. We sent uh, 
a hundred of them to uh, school in Virginia to learn how to be prosecutors. Okay, what was the outcome of that? What was the result? You know, you bought the shoes, but uh, are they still using them to fight or do they go back and work for the Taliban? Or we find we bought a lot of weapons and they end up being sold to the Taliban. Or we, you know, we uh, uh, built schools, but <laughs> they fall down, they melt. So you have to look at outcomes. And you're asking the question of what was the outcome? And I think our outcome has been we have gotten Congress and the administration to slow down and focus on what works and what doesn't work. We've forced through just, I think, the tremendous press we've done, the tremendous relationship we have with the executive branch and Congress, we've gotten people to push the pause button on spending money and start to think about outcomes. You know, I think the best example of where we succeeded, and this is something that's very hard to quantify. Uh, we had a, a, a staffer who worked for me, it was from Minnesota actually, okay, went members going back to Thanksgiving in Minnesota with his family, and he met one of his uncles who said, hey, you work for that cigar guy. You know, I just got a contract from the Navy over in Afghanistan. And I remember he said, and the guy told me, he says, well, I, whatever you do, I hope you don't screw up like the guy who built the uh, building that melted. So when we could, and this was a guy who was a contracting officer in Minnesota for the Navy. So when we could actually reach out to somebody in a contracting shop in Minnesota who said, whoa, let's be careful. Or like a general once told me, and I won't name him, he says, you know, I don't like you, Sopko. I said, well, my mother does. But she said, no, I don't like you. You're like the cops in the New Jersey Turnpike with that damn radar gun. And you know something? He says, I do slow down. So when we can get people in our government to slow down, to start thinking about fraud, waste, and abuse, that to me is success. Now, we've done that in a IG fashion with our Lessons Learned program. We've issued seven of these massive Lessons Learned reports where we've looked at certain big issues and produced these reports, which have been very useful to uh, uh, our government. I mean, I remember sitting down with uh, Joe Dunford, who used to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, went in for a 30-minute meeting, and I came out after two hours briefing him on one of our reports. Now, when Joe Dunford can take that time and thinks it's important enough to talk to an IG about a lessons learned report, we are finally looking toward improving future activities. And I think that is where you, we, we basically earned our keep. Uh, not the people we've arrested and not, uh, I mean, that's nice. $3 billion we've recovered for the taxpayer. That's nice. But it's, again, going back to what our purpose is. Our job is to improve how government works. And that's what we've done, I think, to some degree. And that's what all the IG should hope for. You also uh, generate these lessons learned reports, which you've referenced. Um, the most recent one of which hits an area of uh, intense interest for me personally. Uh, that is the reintegration of ex-combatants 
because um, you know you get that you get that wrong, uh, and boom, you have ISIS. Uh, so, can you tell us how the report was structured, what your findings were, and what your recommendations were? Uh, it's a great question. I'm glad to talk about that. And uh, uh, But before, let me just tell you a little bit about our Lessons Learned program. It became very uh, popular in December because the Washington Post did a whole series called the Afghanistan Papers, which were based upon basically a FOIA request for all of our uh, uh, raw interview notes that we did, uh, uh, hundreds of them uh, on that. Uh, the Lessons Learned program came about because General John Allen and Ryan Crocker and uh, uh, others basically said, look at Sopko, we've looked at your statute, you're the only guy who's looking at whole of government. Because John Allen, and I think some of you who've been in the military appreciate, the military is pretty good doing lessons learned, although they're usually more strategic than and uh, broader. And uh, I remember John Allen having breakfast with him, General Allen, and he said, uh, you know, uh, uh, Army will do lessons learned. They're really good at that. You know, Navy will do, Marines will do. He says even the Air Force will do it. But he says, is the State Department doing lessons learned? We've been there at that time. I, we were been there for like 14 years. Uh, is USAID doing, AID doing it? And is anybody doing them how they work together? the whole of government, because what you see in Afghanistan is the future. It's a whole of government, and not just in the national security arena. I know you're talking national security. If you look at some of the more serious problems facing our nation, they're whole of government, but we tend to be stovepiped. So whether it's uh, a problem with social security and retirement, a problem with health care, a problem with crime, a problem with the use of opiates, those are whole of government. And we tend to focus just DOJ will look at DOJ, aid will look at aid and whatever. So they said, Sopko, you at SIGAR can look at the whole of government and try to do some of this cross-agency analysis. So that brings us to this series of lessons learned reports we did, which were suggested by many people in the government. And actually, the issue of reintegration was suggested by a former uh, military commander uh, out there, General Nicholson, as well as by uh, one of the ambassadors. So what we did is we basically looked at the five or six attempts we did of reintegrating in Afghanistan, as well as we looked at uh, our reintegration efforts that were carried out in Colombia as well as Somalia. And the conclusion was it's tough and a, none of them worked in Afghanistan. But our major finding was that you're not gonna have success unless you can come up with a way to reintegrate. The, and by reintegrate, we mean the combatants. You got 60 some thousand Taliban. What are you gonna do the day after? And we actually wrote a report talking about the day after. The day after a peace agreement, what do you do? And one of the things you gotta do is reintegrate. And if you've studied reintegration, you realize it's expensive, it's technical, and we warned that the State Department, USAID, and the military don't really have a plan for reintegration. And unfortunately, I don't think they do even now. 
So that's something that has to happen. And what happens when you have peace, you're not even going to have the 60,000 uh, Taliban. You're going to have people coming back from Iran, from Pakistan. You're going to talk about hundreds of thousands, if not a million people coming back, and they are all looking for jobs. And if you can't reintegrate them into an economy, you're just creating the greater opportunity for another terrorist group, another reactionary group, to use these people to cause mayhem. So um, the bottom line is, uh, you know, it's all on the web. You can see the entire report, and I'm not doing justice to it, but uh, we testified about it, and I think it got a lot of interest on the Hill. And actually, as a result of that, Congress has asked us to look at, right now, what is state aid and DOD doing about post-peace uh, planning? So that's one of the things we're looking at. And I just want to note that one very interesting thing about the reports that are out there is that your office has created an interactive version for mobile devices. And we are definitely going to link some of those in our show notes because they're much more accessible than your standard issue government report might be. Thank you very much. Yeah, we do do that. We're the only IG that has interactive reports because my staff has basically told me is that a lot of people use interactive. Now, I'm an old paper guy. Uh, I don't do that, but we're dealing with Hill staffers and administration staffers who are a lot younger who like things on their uh, electronic equipment. So part of our mission is to try to get the message out to those people in the government and the private sector uh, the best we can. So we're very happy about that. And so uh, uh, I hope uh, you do link to it and I hope people take a look. Thank you for tuning in to National Security Law Today this week. The rest of our conversation with Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, John Sopko, will be airing next week. We'll talk more about specific instances of corruption that he and his office are combating in Afghanistan. And we are going to link these statutes and the reports that we discussed throughout this episode in the notes to this show and on our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can find us there, you can email us at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Please give us your feedback and remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform of choice. We will be back next week with more content on Inspectors General and the Saigar. Until then, be well and stay safe, everyone. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.